So we have a question from Jamie H. He says, as a journalist, how do you deal with the continuous silencing of conservatives on the internet? How do we fight against it? Yeah, so I think it's first important to define sort of what silencing is. Uh, so I think it's, people often accuse me of hypocrisy, right? When I say conservatives are being silenced and you say, oh, well, you write for the Daily Wire, the Daily Wire is all over Facebook, you're not being silenced. I think it's important to say that being silenced is being pushed out of common spaces. So like people always talk about the Overton window of this field of acceptable rhetoric. Conservatives are being silenced from mainstream political debate. That's really what's happening. So we're being pushed out of things like, for example, social media, uh, groups like uh, Parler are being eradicated. So conservatives are truly being silenced. I think the way I try and deal with it is I do what I said in the speech, which is I try and speak the truth as loudly as I can using any platform I can. I think it's difficult to say how we push back because there's so many ways we're being silenced. I think the main one that I use is just to be as determined as I can with what I think and not back down because I think the left rely on people getting tired, rely on people just not wanting to fight every day. And I think if you're any form of journalist or a political commentator, you simply don't have that option. Great. Um, so next we have another anonymous question. Um, this person asks, I don't believe this question is asked often enough, but do you have any book recommendations? Yeah, so I think, so I would say read everything by like Charles Krauthammer. He's like my political hero. I love how he writes and I think he writes in a very nuanced way. I think there's tons of resources, on, resources online that will give you advice on various books. Uh, I actually would always recommend a lot of fiction, I think, as well, is very important. I think people tend to focus on just pure political books. My issue with pure political books is that there's a lot of people who try and write about topics at the moment just to sort of get their idea out there, get their brand out there. And I think a lot of the, the better ideas are actually rooted in subjects like fiction. So I think, for example, George Orwell, Animal Farm, 1984, are two of one of the most important books anyone who's interested in politics today can read. And I would recommend those over really a multitude of other more sort of politically minded nonfiction books. Oh, I think you're muted. Sorry. Um, thank you. Yeah, I definitely agree that that fiction is very important. Um, so we have another anonymous question. Who or what is your inspiration? I think being a conservative journalist is a difficult enough job and who or what keeps you motivated to keep going? Yeah, so I wouldn't say who. I, I don't think there are necessarily I think there are people who you can emulate and people you can respect. I think what is very important as a conservative is to be motivated by what you believe. So for example, moving to the US and becoming an American conservative as opposed to a British conservative, I'm motivated by what I believe to be true things. So the things that are really the fundamental to American conservatism. That's what motivates me. Seeing those things being slowly eroded or quickly eroded in some cases, that's what motivates me. And I think that's why I feel like I can't take my foot off the gas. I think if you are motivated by people rather than ideas, I think it can be beneficial, but it also leaves you vulnerable to if those people go off the path, you're almost following the person, whereas principles don't tend to change. So I think it's always safer to really be pushed by principles if you believe your principles are good. Um, we have another question from Dean Roberts. How should we deal with discrimination against us for our beliefs? I've had people I thought were friends become my enemies for my political views. 
I mean, I think I don't know a single conservative who hasn't had that experience of whether it be a friend, a colleague or a family member. I think it's just an unfortunate element of the society we live in. I think the best way to deal with that is to unfortunately accept it as a reality. I think there's, it's going to happen to everyone, unfortunately. I think it's important, though, to realize that this is a symptom of a greater problem. It's not that necessarily that person hates you. I think if you scratch beneath the surface, I think they're being driven by something greater, which is a very, very powerful media, a very powerful education system, very powerful corporations who are encouraging people to be divided over matters like politics. So I think if you have the opportunity, for example, if it's a family member or a close friend who is rejecting you, but not doing it in a way that, oh, they'll never speak to you again. What I usually do is I try and scratch beneath the surface of what they're saying. And I don't try and necessarily convince them to believe what I believe, but I try and have them explain why they think I'm such a deplorable, for example. There are also some people you're never going to reach. Like there are people, for example, acquaintances or coworkers who don't want to look you in the face. This has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to many people here. Sometimes you've just got to pick your battles and it's unfortunate, but I think you've just got to accept it and try and focus on fixing the bigger problem, which is the desire to divide people politically rather than fighting all these little battles with people who are unlikely to change their mind. Thank you. That's actually a question that I've had on my mind for a while too. So I'm glad that someone asked that. Um, what is the difference between British conservatism and American conservatism? Yeah, so that's a question I get a lot. I think the main difference is that the principles American conservatism are built on are really sort of individual freedoms, individual rights, um, limited government in both size and power, and also protection of things like the Second Amendment, very, very important principle that just doesn't exist in the UK. My, the way I look at British conservatism is there are a few people who value things like individual freedom, but to, not to the extent that it's protected in America. There are people who are conservatives in England who support socialized medicine, for example. There are people who are conservatives in England who support wide array of taxes to pay for various um, schemes here, which would be viewed as quite far left. And really, conservatives in England believe in a lot of them, not everyone, but a lot of people in government believe in big government, just slightly not as big as uh, the Labour Party, which is the leftist party in the UK. Um, we have, as an, as an aspiring journalist, what advice do you have for those of us that are conservative that would like to eventually work for an amazing company like the, da the Daily Wire? So I think the, f the first thing I always say is to um, echo something Jeremy Boring, who's the, the co-CEO of Daily Wire, always says, which is the first part of doing something is starting to do it. So I think if you want to become a journalist or a political commentator or any number of these roles that have become quite ingrained in, in sort of conservative commentary, is just to start doing it. You're not going to wake up one day and be able to write for the Daily Wire or the National Review, but the glory of the internet is that there's really no gatekeeper to this. Anyone can start. All you need is an internet connection and a phone, really, and you can, you can do it. You can start a podcast. You can talk about issues. So, for example, Clubhouse is great for this. You can just sit and talk with people. You can write on a blog. There are a lot of things you can do. I think it depends on your age and your experience, but assuming that question was from someone who's like college age, maybe high school age, I think it's also important to be humble and to realize that you probably don't know as much as you will know in six months' time, in a year's time, in 10 years' time. And so to try and find a space for yourself in the conservative commentary world that you are adding something new. So for example, every student writes an article on bias on college campus. It's a very, very important issue, but 
try and find something different. Try and find something you can add. So for example, whether it be becoming an expert on a subject matter or really digging in deep to the data beneath gun violence. Like there's a lot of very, very hard lifting, the heavy lifting that a lot of people don't want to use. And if you're trying to break into this space, providing yourself as a resource rather than just yet another opinion is a really great way to do that. Um, how many other questions would you like to answer? We have three that are open right now and you've answered six already. Does it matter? Do you Let's just keep going. Yeah, I'm happy to okay. answer as many as you like. If I great. collapse asleep, that's when we can end. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I know someone who had their article removed because it was pro-American from their school newspaper. Have there been instances that you've experienced something similar to this? Uh, so I think I'm pretty lucky because I write for the Daily Wire and so my ideas are, are kind of promoted there as opposed to anything else. Uh, I've definitely had people in work environments um, outside of politics who have had, say, public posts they've put up in forum, you know, internal forums, things like that, had them removed. Uh, I've never seen articles removed. I also had the, the luck in many ways of going to um, college in the UK. And so I avoided a lot of this, this horror that a lot of you are unfortunately having to deal with, which is the rampant politica politicalization of college level students, which I just didn't really have to deal with. Uh, so I'm fortunate enough not to have experienced that in a college environment, but I see it happening in, in the corporate world every day. Another question from Jamie, what made you want to work and move to the United States? Do you believe the US and the individual freedoms we have and support uh, is superior to, sorry, do you believe the US and individual freedoms we have and support is superior to what is in the UK? Uh, yes, yeah, so that's sort of two questions there. So when I moved, I actually was in, um, I was a software engineer before becoming a political commentator full time. So I moved out to the California Bay Area for that. Um, and it's sort of the center of the world for, for coding. So that's kind of like the place to go. That was my main driving focus. In terms of whether the sort of conservatism is superior in the United States compared to the United Kingdom, I would say absolutely, simply because it's, I think, based on fundamental principles in a way that British conservatism really isn't. So the notion of individual freedom is really quite revolutionary and unprecedented in, in human history. And it's based on a collection of both Judeo-Christian principles and also sort of Greek philosophy. There's a, a very, very tiny intersection of some of the best areas of philosophy that are being combined under, under the American flag, which has produced pretty monumental success in so many ways compared to other nations. I think in terms of modern conservatism, I think it's superior, except that I think the idea of what American conservatism is is changing quite rapidly and we're seeing it evolve into a more sort of European either populist notion or big government notion. And so I worry sometimes that in say tw 10, 20 years time, it'll be harder to distinguish between American conservatism and European conservatism. Um, we have the word socialism is one of those words that the left has completely changed to mean something other than suffering, mm -hmm. poverty and corruption. How do you propose that we work to change the way people, especially younger people, view socialism? Yeah, so I think that that's absolutely right. They've turned socialism to just being nice to people, which is pretty much how they promote every single one of their policies. It's like, oh, it's socialism is just caring about others. No, it's not. It's about taking resources away from one person and supposedly giving it to another while people in the middle, usually in government, take it all for themselves. I think the important thing is just to point out the obvious history and the ongoing history of socialism. So every time someone says socialism, define it. I tell them what it is and then tell them 
yeah, it was implemented here and this was the result. It was implemented here and this was this result. I mean, Venezuela is still suffering from the ongoing implementation of socialism in real time. You can point that on a daily basis. I think it's just really on the back of what I was saying in the speech, the definition of words matter. It's not okay for people to promote actual socialism while claiming that it's actually just the type of socialism they like. That's just not the case. Like the, t- the type of socialism being pushed by people like AOC, by people like Bernie Sanders is actual socialism. And we've seen what happens and it's, it's disastrous. And even if it wasn't disastrous, I, I, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's a really important point. When people talk about socialism, you'll always hear people say, oh, well, it's, it's failed everywhere it was tried. That's not really the point. Ideologically, it is immoral and evil. You are taking the property and the fruit of someone's labor from them and then deciding who it should be given to instead. That is fundamentally immoral. It doesn't matter that socialism has failed. The fact that socialism has failed is like the cherry on the cake of why socialism is bad. But let's say there was a, a perfect socialist utopia where the wealthy were, had their wealth liquidated and given to everyone else, but everyone else was happy about it. That's still immoral. I think that's the really important part about socialism. It's not that whether or not it works, it's that it's fundamentally wrong. Um, we have a question from Easton. It's a bit of a long one, so I'm going to make sure not to, to mess it up, so I might read it a bit slower. Um, what do you think that people who are writing... Um, sorry. What do you think that people who are within the journalist sphere at school deal with liberal teachers and or a newspaper that is blatantly anti your beliefs? For example, my school newspaper has been promoting BLM everywhere and books like White Fragility to Educate Yourself, which is anti-right-wing and more anti-white propaganda. Yeah, so I think it's important here to pick your battles. I think I'm actually quite different in the kind of political commentary space. I think there are a lot of people who like me go speak to college students and, and tell them that maybe college isn't important or you should stand up in your class and argue with the professor or you should report the newspaper for promoting anti-American views. You have to pick your battles and you also have to sort of think selfishly. The point of getting a higher education is that you are bettering your life. I think something Ben Shapiro says is he would rather you do what you need to do to do well, make enough money, go back and then donate money to the college, get that, that person fired. I think that's almost more beneficial in the long term to both you and the institution than in the short term, standing up and arguing with a professor or making a big stink about sort of the, the local newspaper in the school. You've got to decide whether it's what you want to do. If it is, then I support your choice. But don't feel that you have to sacrifice your own future for the fight that you're probably going to lose unless you get enough people behind you. And so I think it's very, very important to just be very careful with your decisions. Think about the long-term moves and don't sort of undermine your own success because you feel pressured just to say something. So I'll read these last three questions and I think then we can, uh, we can conclude. Okay. It's funny that you mentioned Ben Shapiro because our next question is from Tom. He asks, what is it like working with Ben Shapiro? So I haven't actually met him yet. I've been in the office um, two and a half weeks and I haven't met him. He's, he's in Florida so, and I'm in the Nashville office. So I'm sure we'll bump into each other eventually, but I, I don't have anything, no, no juicy insider gossip there, I'm afraid. Um, coming from the UK where gun rights are not as extensive as what we have here, what are your thoughts on what is currently happening, especially after the recent mass shootings and Joe Biden's call to a ban assault weapons? 
Yeah, so I think his call to ban assault weapons is part of their normal routine, which is just to ignore the data behind gun violence in pursuit of their own policies. Uh, there, there really is no evidence that their policies would work if that is their goal, to reduce gun violence, because most gun violence, it, using handguns and the vast majority of victims of gun violence are young black males, usually in urban areas, for which these sort of high-capacity magazine bans or these assault weapon bans wouldn't have any effect. And so from someone who came to the UK, uh, from the UK to the US, in the UK, there are really no gun rights whatsoever. It's, it's hilariously difficult to even own a shotgun. Um, and coming here where it is a, a right, it's not a privilege, it's a right. I think that's something that the left are trying to make us forget. It is not a privilege. It is a right to both be able to defend yourself against, firstly, a tyrannical government, that is the purpose of the Second Amendment, but also to protect yourself, your property, and your family. And so I think, again, that's another one of those unprecedented, really revolutionary ideas that makes the United States unique in many ways. And I think it's not a surprise that the left are following in the footsteps of other tyrannical regimes in the past who know that the first step to getting the population to do what they want is make them dependent on the government in every way. And so if you've got people living in, say, areas where there's high crime and you have no ability to defend yourself, you are dependent on the government in every single way. And the left love nothing more than a dependent population. 100%. And I think that this is a great question to end this webinar on. Um, an anonymous person asked, this was an amazing discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Where can I hear more from you? Oh, well, yeah, that's <laughs> the best question is always the one that allows me just to self-promote for five minutes. So <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, so you can... My social media is um, I-G-H-A-W-O-R-T-H. So that's I-G-H-A-W-O-R-T-H. My last name is Howarth. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I'm on all those platforms. If you head over to the Daily Wire, I write really quite often for them. So you can find all my pieces there and links to all of my other social media. Um, now that I've moved, I'm trying to set up like a temporary studio. And once I've moved officially, I'll have like uh, be able to start my various podcasts up as well. So you can find uh, my podcast, which is the Ian House Show, where I interview other conservatives and sometimes non-conservatives if they'll talk with me about various issues. And there's also the Truth in 60 Seconds, which is like a new project I'm working on, which is to try and break down really important issues in 60 seconds or less, just to kind of give you that bite-sized um, toolkit so that you can go off and, and discuss these things yourself. So yeah, please find me on any of those platforms. Um, speak with Gwen if you want to get in touch with me directly. I'm sure she'll be happy to like give you my contact information. And yeah, again, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to people. And I hope one day I can talk to you in person. It's always strange talking at a webcam. We all live in computers now. So hopefully one day we can return to a world where we can actually speak in person.